Welcome back to the program. Before Dick Cheney, before Homeland Security, even before the Cold War itself, there existed forces within the U.S. government bent on shaping their own agenda for personal political gain, financial gain, and perhaps worst of all, out of a self-righteous belief in privilege and its exercise of power. During the dark days of World War II, Alan Dulles would begin building a national security apparatus which would become centered at the CIA and which would grow exponentially during the Cold War. It would ultimately expand its tentacles into almost every aspect of American government, even if it meant short-circuiting the key instruments of America's democratic institutions. Now, with the help of recently released government documents and personal diaries, investigative journalist David Talbot exposes Dulles and some of the CIA's darkest secrets. David Talbot is the founder and former editor-in-chief of Salon. He's the author of the previous books, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, and the bestseller, Season of the Witch. It is my pleasure to welcome Dave Talbot to talk about his new work, The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the rise of America's secret government. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. It's good to have you here. Let's go back to uh, the darker days of World War II. Who was Alan Dulles? How did he get involved in, in government and ultimately in the CIA? Well, Alan Dulles was one of those people born to power and for power. He was born into a prominent family of uh, international lawyers and statesmen. His brother, John Foster Dulles, his older brother, of course, was uh, also on that same fast track to the top. And uh, they started off in service during World War One, and uh, then John Foster Dulles quickly became head of Wall Street's most powerful law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell, and that became the base for both brothers uh, as they pursued their careers, first on Wall Street and later in Washington. And they were a part of a world of, of privilege, a world that we might refer to today as kind of the Eastern establishment. Talk a little about that. Yes, I mean, this is what uh, many scholars now today call the deep state, what Hebright Mills, the famous sociologist from uh, the 1950s, uh, Columbia sociologist, wrote about in his book, The Power Elite. These are the people who, no matter who happens to be president, uh, run America. They're powerful Wall Street lawyers, investment bankers, uh, national security officials. They all belong to the same clubs. In the Dallas's case, uh, the key club was the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. And this is where these men, and in those days, uh, probably 99.9% were men, hammer out their ideas, the, the policy that later becomes uh, the official policy of the United States. Uh, again, no matter who happens to be president. They wield enormous influence. Um, they're, as I say, they're socially connected. Uh, they intermarry often. Uh, this is the American ruling class. And and there are many families that have been part of it that are names that are familiar to all of us. Uh, the Dulleses, of course, the Bushes, the Lodges, and we could go on and on. They all went the to many of the Rockefellers, many of the same schools as well. Absolutely. And so they have this kind of unified sense of the world and, and how to uh, defend American interests abroad. And in the case of Alan Dulles, who I focus on, uh, this involves, of course, uh, is by any means necessary. Uh, these men are very gentlemanly, uh, very charming, uh, as in Alan Dulles' case. Uh, you know, he was a great party guest, 
but he was capable of coldly and lethally carrying out America's business. And, uh, of course, the dark side of American power is what I focus on in the devil's chessboard. And part of it is that it wasn't always in America's interest, but it was in the interest of, of Dulles and in the interests of, of the people that he essentially represented. That's right. To them, American interests were the interests of the power elite. They felt that democracy was too important to be left in the hands of the people or its elected representatives. Uh, Alan Dulles said famously, well, he was running for Congress. He actually took one stab at democracy as a younger man running for Congress from a wealthy district in New York, and he lost terribly. He had no feel for the electoral game, for the game of democracy. But he, uh, he said democracy was best left in the hands of the intelligent people, as he put it, by which, of course, he meant people like him and his brother. To what extent did he get involved in, in the Second World War? And talk a little bit about the areas that his tentacles really became clear as you write about him in The Devil's Chessboard. Well, of course, World War II is the period when Alan Dulles really begins to show his colors. Uh, this is a man who, again, ignores presidential orders, directives. Um, he goes to Switzerland. He has himself sent to Switzerland on purpose because Switzerland uh, at that point during the war is closed off uh, from the rest of the world, basically. It's a nest of intrigue, of espionage. He gets in there and he later wrote about this with great dramatic flair, like he just barely got across the border before the Nazis closed it. Well, he knew the Nazis. He, he and his brother had done business with the Nazis, with high German officials, corporate officials, political officials before the war, and they continued to do business with the Nazis during the war. The Dulles brothers were guilty of uh, treason during the war. They collaborated, uh, they represented German business interests, and so Dulles gets himself sent there as the top OSS spy. Of course, the OSS was our spy service during World War II. And he uses his position there not to, uh, to, uh, to defend the interests of America so much as to do, represent the interests of his clients. And that means Nazi officials, in many cases, who are slipping across the border and meeting with him and trying to cut a separate deal. Franklin Roosevelt... Uh, at the Casablanca conference with Winston Churchill uh, during the war, firmly stated uh, the Allied position, which was unconditional surrender. No separate deals with the Nazis. We're going to crush this uh, barbaric regime, as he put it, and bring these uh, savage leaders to justice. Dulles would have none of that. He was friendly with these men. So he continued to chat with them and talk with them during the war. And at his first opportunity, he did indeed, in the final days of the war, cut a separate deal known as Operation Sunrise with Nazi forces in Italy. This was a deal that was a backstab to Joseph Stalin, who felt that the Soviet Union had been carrying the brunt of the war and was very sensitive about the idea of his fellow allies cutting a deal with the Soviet Union behind his back. FDR did not want to do that. He knew how dependent we were on the Soviet Union during the war. But Alan Dulles did that because he always thought the Soviet Union and not Nazi Germany was the primary enemy. How did he come to that viewpoint, seeing the Soviet Union as, as A, as the bigger enemy than Nazi Germany, and also in terms of what was the earliest inklings of, of this fierce anti-communism that would infuse so much of what he did? Well, in Alan Dulles' worldview, of course, the Nazi ideology was still part of the international capitalism. 
Um, he was doing business with these men, as I say. Uh, he, they were, the Nazis were using Swiss banks during the war when Dulles was in uh, Switzerland to, to stash their internet, their loot, uh, the loot that they were, in some cases, ripping literally from the, the teeth of uh, Jews in concentration camps, and the loot that they were taking from you know, countries they were invading. And he was looking the other way. He thought that it was important that Germany be strong after the war. He didn't care if the German, West German government, the democratic government, was uh, included many high-ranking Nazis. In fact, he helped install uh, one of Hitler's former spymasters, Reinhard Galen, who was Hitler's spymaster on the goriest front in the war, the Eastern Front. He helped install Galen after the war as the head of West Germany's intelligence, a very powerful position. Galen, in some ways, ran that government. Um, he was uh, working for Konrad Adenauer, the Democratic Chancellor, but he was a very uh, uh, you know, cunning and rat-like man, Galen, and uh, he and Dulles formed a tight partnership after the war, during the Cold War. In the, these men's thinking in some ways, was a continuation of Nazi thinking. They had an exterminationist view of the Soviets, of the barbar, of the of the, uh, uh, the Bolshevik East. This was the primary threat to world capitalism and to their ideolo- ideology. And so, in Dulles's mind, he thought nothing of aligning himself with former Nazis like Galen. He brought Galen to the United States. He wined and dined him. He brought him to his club. He even got him tickets to the final game of the World Series in 1951 between the New York Yankees and New York Giants when Joe DiMaggio played his last game. This war criminal was sitting in the seats there watching that game. Imagine if uh, the New Yorkers around him knew who was in their midst. What was the relationship during that, that wartime period between Roosevelt and Dulles? Well, Roosevelt was always... Of the Dulles brothers. When Foster Dulles was running this powerful law firm on Wall Street and uh, FDR was trying to reform Wall Street, he knew, of course, that Wall Street shenanigans had helped bring about the crash of 1929. And he was, of course, uh, coming up with reforms like uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission to help uh, keep an eye on uh, the uh, Wall Street banksters, as they were called at the time, and Glass Steagall Act. Uh, another important banking industry reform that Bill Clinton, unfortunately, threw out uh, with disastrous results. Uh, so these reforms were antagonized, and of course, the Wall Street elite, like the Dulles brothers. And Foster Dulles brought his, his uh, wealthy clients together in his office and told them, look, just ignore these laws, basically. We'll ride this out. So, you know, the Foster brothers had an antagonistic relationship from the very beginning with uh, Roosevelt. Roosevelt, one of Roosevelt's rising young New Dealers was a young William O. Douglas, who later became Supreme Court Justice. He loathed the, uh, the Dulles, particularly Foster Dulles. So there was a real ideological clash there between that Wall Street plutocracy, as uh, Roosevelt called them, and the reformers and the New Deal. Uh, you know, Joe Kennedy, uh, another New Dealer, of course, uh, wealthy himself, but also hated these these uh, Yankee, uh, you know, financiers, the bankers who he felt had always excluded him as an Irish Catholic and so on. And so that was, again, part of this ideological split within these uh, 
in ruling circles in America. Why was Eisenhower so drawn to the Dulleses that he gave them as much influence and power as he did? Well, I think Ike was, was you know, intimidated by them. You know, he was not really uh, born into that world. Uh, he was a soldier. Uh, he learned to uh, enjoy their company and playing golf with these wealthy people, these, uh, you know, these industrialists and so on. But uh, Eisenhower had not gone through that Ivy League sort of power elite upbringing. Um, his son, who uh, worked with him in the White House, later said that his dad was indeed intimidated by the, the Ivy League types. And that personified the CIA. The CIA was a very smooth outfit. It represented the creme de la creme of America and society in, in many ways. Uh, again, these are people who were... Uh, you know, came from Wall Street, had been educated at Ivy, Ivy League schools. They had a sort of a upper-class sheen and glamour about them after World War II. And uh, so the Dulles brothers represented to him not only that world, but also the world of Republican Party power. They were aligned with the Tom Dewey faction uh, of the Republican Party. They had handpicked Eisenhower, really, to run for office to begin with. He, they raised money for him. They helped run his campaign. So he knew he owed them, and he wasn't about to go against them. Um, he shared their ideological views. He, he was a strong anti-communist himself. And what they promised him was kind of defense on the cheap. Foster said, look, you don't need to go around you know, spending millions and millions on a huge armed, uh, uh, you know, a huge army, standing army. What we can do is uh, use the nuclear weapons that we have and the nuclear monopoly we have to terrorize the rest of the world. And so that's the beginning of this kind of doomsday strategy, this uh, brinksmanship strategy that Foster Dulles uh, initiated. And then on the other hand, while they're threatening the world with nuclear weapons, and they did threaten them, uh, other countries again and again throughout the Eisenhower presidency, in some cases in a very frightening way. Um, then you have Alan Dulles in the shadows enforcing America's imperial will through assassinations and uh, coups and uh, regime changes around the world. And so this was the Dulles sort of, um, you know, uh, two-track strategy, uh, and, and both involved... Uh, imposing America's will violently on the rest of the world. And even while they were telling Eisenhower that he could have this security on the cheap, they were really, through their corporate interests, building up the military-industrial complex. Yes, absolutely. The economy becomes increasingly militarized during that time uh, to, to such an extent that Eisenhower himself, as he's leaving the White House, warns the, the country, of course, in his famous farewell address about the, quote, military-industrial complex that's gained so much power and influence in American life. Well, Eisenhower's, you know, great to warn America about that, but he presided over the buildup of that military-industrial complex, so he himself bore a lot of the blame for it. You know, at the end of his administration, I think Ike was old, he was ailing, he had heart troubles. Uh, you know, one physician had told him if he ran for re-election in 1956, there's a good chance he may not make it through that second term. So I don't think he was in great shape to resist the Dulles brothers. Uh, Foster does die during the second term, but Allen is still very much a force. And 
he, uh, Eisenhower, I think, late in his administration, wants to go out, known as the peace president. He, there's a, a summit planned in Geneva with the Soviet Union. Stalin has been replaced, of course, by Khrushchev, who's much more uh, amenable to uh, diplomatic solutions than Stalin was. So this is Eisenhower's greatest opportunity. And that uh, summit was sabotaged, of course, by the famous crash of the U-2 CIA spy plane over the Soviet Union. And that became, of course, an international incident. And uh, there goes Eisenhower's last chance to peace. Eisenhower, I think, always blamed Dulles for that, rightly so. Uh, the CIA had assured uh, President Eisenhower that the Soviet Union couldn't possibly shoot down one of their high-flying planes. That was proven wrong, of course. And um, there are some people, uh, including Fletcher Prouty, the Air Force colonel, who actually served as a liaison between the Air Force and the CIA at the time, who felt that that shoot-down was quite uh, possibly deliberate. In other words, the CIA had set, uh, set up that incident to occur in order to sabotage the Geneva Peace Summit and Ike's chances for peace. It was clear from statements that Dulles had made, that Alan Dulles had made, and things he had done, he was no fan of any kind of detente with Khrushchev. No. Uh, Foster's dying words as he's dying of cancer to his brother during the second term of Eisenhower is carry on this uh, rigid fight against world communism at all costs. That is your mission. And that is indeed what Dulles decided. You know, Kennedy, after he was elected, um, fatally, I believe, decided to keep Dulles on as CIA director. And soon after JFK took over the White House, um, there's his, his close friend, Bill Walton, was at a party in Washington at uh, Walter Lippmann, the columnist's house. And Dulles was there, Alan Dulles, and he knew, of course, that Walt, who Walton was and that there were Kennedy people there that evening. And yet he still had the arrogance and the self-confidence to boast, you know, um, there's the Kennedy policy and then there's my brother's policy. I'm going to continue following my brother's policy. Well, imagine that on the eve of this new presidency, announcing that you're going to defy this new president, and you're saying it right out loud at the social gathering in Washington. And that is indeed what Alan Dulles then did throughout uh, his uh, term with Kennedy, which was short, but he continued to defy Kennedy presidency while he was serving Kennedy as CIA director and even afterwards. Before we get to Kennedy, talk a little bit about how the Dulleses used Richard Nixon, because that's a, a, an interesting story, as, as kind of a front for their anti-communist message. Yes, well, it was, it was a convenient, uh, mutually convenient uh, relationship. There's some evidence that that deal between a, a very conniving and ambitious young Richard Nixon and the Dulles brothers was cut early on. You know, Dick Nixon uh, was a young Navy lawyer um, during World War II, and uh, as the war was coming to an end, one of his jobs was to oversee some of the paperwork and the huge piles of contracts and documents that were piling up in warehouses on the East Coast. And there's some evidence that he came across uh, documents that proved that the Dulles brothers were indeed uh, committing treason during the war by uh, representing Nazi business interests and sheltering uh, those interests so they couldn't be shut down by the U.S. government during the war. Um, and uh, John Loftus, who was later a Justice Department uh, attorney and Nazi hunter during the Carter administration, 
alleges that uh, Nixon found these smoking gun documents, took them to the Dulles brothers, and they made a deal. And the deal was that this young uh, lawyer was going to get the full backing of the Republican East Coast establishment to run in, a, in this remote kind of obscure district out in Southern California for Congress, which, is, which he, he did, of course, knocking off a, uh, a great congressman, by the way, a new dealer named Jerry Voris in the process. So that's the roots then of this relationship, and it continued, of course, for many years in a mutually convenient way. Dick Nixon went on, of course, to establish his name during the Alger Hiss uh, hearings, uh, uh, the House on American Activities Committee, when uh, this New Dealer Alger Hiss was um, accused of being a, a spy and a traitor. Um, the Dulles brothers fed uh, Nixon material during those hearings that helped him, uh, and that really set him on his way. And then the Dulles brothers also made sure that Eisenhower picked him for the presidential ticket as his running mate in 1952. Why did the Kennedys keep Dulles around? I think that advice probably came from his father, Joe Kennedy. Um, Joe Kennedy was very uh, concerned that this young president who'd been who had won by such a narrow margin, should be seen as uh, someone who uh, was not going to rock the boat too much. And so he thought it was important to incorporate some of the elements of the old regime within this new presidency. And so Kennedy, young Kennedy, JFK, does indeed do that. He picks not only Dulles, he keeps Dulles in, in office at the CIA, he keeps J. Edgar Hoover in office at the FBI, and he uh, keeps Douglas Dillon, uh, an Eisenhower holdover, as his Secretary of Treasury, uh, among others. And this, you know, stunned and surprised some of the um, more ardent, younger, new frontiersmen in his his administration. And Kennedy, I think, came to regret it. Uh, certainly, in the case of Dulles, he did. Um, after the disastrous CIA invasion of the Bay of Pigs uh, early in his administration. But at the time, he thought that he needed to do this to reassure the country that he was not going to be, uh, that, you know, that even though he, despite his youth and so on, that he would have older and wiser heads around him. The argument being that the Bay of Pigs was, was a kind of intentional failure on the part of the CIA to try and force Kennedy's hand to do more. That's what I argue. He inherited this uh, mission. It had been uh, hatched, the scheme to invade uh, Cuba with this motley brigade of Cuban exiles um, that was hatched during the Eisenhower-Nixon uh, presidency. And, you know, it was given to him as a fait accompli. We have to go ahead with this. Kennedy felt that if he didn't, that it could politically blow up in his face. Uh, Alan Dulles told him it was a slam dunk. And there was no problem. But the, I think the scheme all along, and this becomes clear as you really go through the documents, as I did, the scheme all along was to have this motley crew of 1,100 uh, people invade on the beach at uh, the Bay of Pigs. But then they knew, the CIA knew, that they were going to quickly get bogged down unless Kennedy sent in the full power of the U.S. military, airplanes, Marines, and so on. And so what they were doing was trying to trick Kennedy into a full U.S. military invasion of Cuba, which Kennedy said all along he was not going to do. And so during the crisis itself, when these, the men are pinned down, the invading uh, brigades pinned down the beaches, 
you know, there's hysteria within uh, the CIA and, uh, you know, a huge effort uh, from the military, from the Pentagon, the CIA to pressure this young president into unleashing uh, the full power of the military. But he stands firm to their shock and uh, he refuses to invade. And um, that begins this crisis uh, of the Kennedy government, the split between the Kennedy White House and the, um, the national security wing of his administration. Which arguably ultimately leads to the assassination. That's what I say in the book. Uh, after Dulles is fired by Kennedy, forced out of office, he goes home to Georgetown, but not into retirement. He sets up what I believe was an anti, essentially an anti-Kennedy government in exile. He continues to operate as if he's still running the CIA. He's meeting with all his top deputies still at his home with field agents, including several who are later uh, come under suspicion by the House Select Committee on Assassinations as figures of interest in the Kennedy assassination. Um, so this is not the, you know, kind of... Um, modus operandi of a, a man who's going gently into the night. He becomes a critic of the Kennedys. Uh, he attacks JFK in speeches as a weak leader who'd rather be loved uh, overseas than respected. Uh, the, this like Dick Cheney, you know, uh, his criticism of the Obama administration. And even in a more sinister way, he attempts and his colleagues in the CIA to subvert Kennedy policy by going around Kennedy's back in places like Italy um, and, and trying to countermand basically Kennedy's orders. Kennedy gave his blessing to something called the opening to the left, which was an attempt by the ruling Christian Democratic Party in Italy uh, to form an alliance uh, with the socialists. And the CIA had always opposed that strongly, but Kennedy gave it his blessing on a visit to Rome, uh, his last overseas visit in summer of 1963. And as soon as Kennedy leaves, the CIA is telling their local um, you know, intelligence colleagues in the Italian intelligence, no, 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 we're going to subvert this, which they proceeded to do. So, um, you know, Aaron, Alan Dulles, you know, no matter who was president, even when he was fired, continued to think that he and his circle ran the, the country. And then finally winds up on the Warren Commission. Yes, conveniently. So there's uh, Robert Caro, who's uh, Lyndon Johnson's, of course, biographer, and others have continued this myth that um, it was Bobby Kennedy, of all people, who advised LBJ to put Dulles on the commission. This is absurd. And this comes from, of course, LBJ himself in his memoir. Uh, LBJ hated Bobby Kennedy, the idea that he would uh, sit with him and get his advice about how to make up this very politically delicate uh, commission. Uh, it's absurd. And the idea that Bobby Kennedy would advise LBJ to put Dulles is on the commission is equally absurd. Uh, Bobby Kennedy knew that his brother had fired Alan Dulles, knew that the Alan Dulles was a bitter enemy of his brother. There's no way that Bobby Kennedy would have done that. Uh, and, of course, Bobby Kennedy you know, quickly came to feel that the Warren Commission was, as he called it, a whitewash. Uh, he said that privately. He knew he couldn't publicly voice that criticism until the time was right. But he intended to get back into power, uh, to run for president at some point, and be in a position where he could reopen that investigation in a legitimate way. David Talbot. The book is The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you.